And good morning, everyone. There are, uh, there are certain subjects that should never be talked about in church. Taboo subjects, and, and I'm pretty sure we, we all know what they are, or at least we could hazard a guess. And it's not that you, you can't or, or shouldn't ever talk about them, but it's generally agreed and understood that, that should, you should avoid speaking about them in front of everyone on a Sunday morning from a pulpit or from a platform like this. I don't know what subjects you have in mind, as, as I, I mentioned the idea of taboo subjects, and if I was to ask you to kind of turn around to the person beside you and just say the first thing that came to mind, it would maybe be really interesting, but don't do that. But I reckon politics is one of those subjects. Not really good to talk about it from a pulpit, from a platform, especially in Northern Ireland. Sex, it's another one of those subjects, again, maybe, especially in Northern Ireland. But there's a third topic that, that people tend to stay away from because it's reckoned, just like the other two, to be, to be far too personal. It's far too uncomfortable. It's inappropriate to discuss it in, in public. And that subject is, is money. And how we get it, and how we handle it, and how we spend it, and how we give it. And, and I can already, certainly speaking personally, sense the nervousness. Now, in some ways, I realize the landscape is changing. People are more willing to talk about difficult subjects in church, and I think that's great. And I hope that we are a church that is prepared to talk about difficult subjects, but money is still a bit of an exception. You can mention it. By all means, you can mention it, and you should mention it, but don't dwell on it. Whatever you do, don't do a Sunday morning series on it. Well, and many of you know this already from WBC News or from the announcements or from something I said a couple of weeks ago that we're starting a new series today called Money Talks. Now, in all likelihood, it's going to be a very short series uh, for, for lots of reasons. And there's, there's a number of reasons why we're doing this because I think it's important to explain why we're, we're doing it. And I'm going to explain at least three reasons why we're doing this in a, in a moment. But right up front, let me say that I personally share some of maybe your anxieties. I don't like talking about money. And I've said this before, part of the reason I don't like talking about money from here is because the church, this church, you pay my salary. Okay? So if I say the wrong thing, or even the right thing, I could trigger an exit strategy. I was going to say an early exit strategy, but I've been here for eight years, so like maybe it is time for a change. Maybe it is time for a change. But there are a few other reasons why I'm, I am reluctant to talk about this, and, and I am scared to talk about this, if I'm honest. And one of the reasons I'm scared to do this is maybe you're visiting today, and I have already this morning met some people who are here for the very first time. It's your first time at Windsor. It's maybe your first time in any church for a while. And the subject is money. And it kind of just confirms your worst fears that the church is a money-grabbing, money-hungry institution. And so you're sitting there thinking, I'll not be back. 
Or maybe you're a regular here and you, you come here all the time and you actually have brought a friend today. And now you are regretting that so much. Another reason why I'm slightly nervous about this series is because in some ways I'm preaching to the choir. That this is a generous church. An incredibly generous church. Many, many people here do think biblically, do think carefully about this subject. They give. They are open-hearted, open-handed. And therefore, at one level, the teach on a series about money is unnecessary at Windsor Baptist. And again, I understand that. I acknowledge that. And finally, what do you say anyway in front of, what, 300 people here this morning? You're all different, come from different backgrounds. You have different means, different circumstances, different personalities, different sensitivities. And so it's a cert that someone's going to be upset. But despite those kind of fears and tensions, I do believe we've got to talk about and address this subject, not just because money matters, but also because I agree with those who say that when it comes to money, silence is one of our biggest problems. Not talking about money in a context like this is a bigger mistake. It's a far greater error. So let me break the silence and let me explain then why we're doing this. And so to begin with, and this, this is something I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, money is a core life issue. We all know that. And therefore, there are literally hundreds of references to it in the Bible. Many of you will know that there are said to be over 2,000 verses in the Bible on money and possessions. And as a Bible believing and a kind of Bible-centered church which sees God's word as our source of truth, as our source of information, and as a guide, it's also our main point of contact with God. We simply can't duck an issue that is so dominant in Scripture, that is all over the pages of Scripture. Like, why would we do that? Plus, as followers of Jesus, we've also got to accept and admit that Jesus spoke more about money and stewardship than he did about any other subject apart from the kingdom of God. He talked more about money and possessions than he did about prayer and faith combined. He spent more time dealing with denarii, to coin a phrase, excuse the pun, than dealing with heaven or hell. In fact, if we were to teach on money as often or as much as Jesus did, then apparently it would be our theme every third Sunday. So like a few weeks, it's okay. But why, why did Jesus talk about this subject so much? Why, apart from the kingdom of God, was this in a sense his, his favorite subject? Why? Well, primarily because it impacts our lives and discipleship and growth as Christians way above any other issue. This subject has the power to consume and derail us quicker than almost any other. And therefore, if we get this wrong, we will suffer spiritually as a church and as individuals. One of the, uh, one of the most interesting and arresting things that Jesus ever said and taught about money comes as part of his so-called Sermon on the Mount. 
that central body of teaching regarding kingdom living. But, but in Matthew 6, there's a warning. And, and we're all familiar with this warning. We all know it. I'm about to quote it in a second. Some of you are already there and you're thinking, but it hit me differently. And a lot more forcefully recently. I hadn't really thought about it like this before, but in that sermon on, on the mount, Jesus kind of compares and contrasts different things. And so he talks about storing up treasure either in heaven or on earth. He talks about light. He talks about darkness. He talks about love. He talks about hate. He compares. He contrasts. Somebody's on the phone for you. And so when he comes to speaking about two masters, one being God, the natural alternative, the obvious other, surely would have been, think about this with me. I know we know what it says, but think about this. Earth, heaven, light, darkness, love, hate, God. What's the opposite? Satan. And so it must have been quite a surprise. It must have grabbed the attention of the very first hearers and listeners to that sermon whenever Jesus actually turns around and says, you cannot serve both God and, no, not Satan, but money. Whoa. Why did he say that? But what is even more intriguing is that in our Bibles, and if you use the NIV, specifically NIV, never noticed this before, never picked this up before, money is capitalized. It's got a capital M. Many people know, have heard something, have seen that before, noticed that before. Anybody? One. Why is that? Why has money got a capital letter? If you have a King James version of the Bible, what is the alternative to money? Anyone know? Mammon. You see, Jesus clearly recognized that money is a, or maybe money is the rival God in life. Maybe that's what it boils down to. It is God-like. It has the power to seek to dominate us. And therefore, Jesus says, listen, if, if that's true, if that's fact, then you can't serve both God and it. Money may be a good servant, but it really wants to be your controlling master. And if it becomes that or even close to that, then the impact on your life will be negative in terms of your relationship with God and your growth as a Christian. And so the first reason for, for kind of doing and beginning this series on money is that we cannot be silent on an issue that is so huge in Scripture and is so fundamental in the teaching of Jesus. If I am going to be faithful to God's Word and faithful to Jesus, I have got to talk about this subject. Incidentally, the, the current Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, has just published a book for Lent this year called Dethroning Mammon. I've read it. It's excellent, and, and if you're looking for something to read alongside this series or something to read during Lent, which starts on the 1st of March, can I really recommend this book? That's just as an aside. But the second reason for this new series is that it connects with our last series. 
It connects with our series on Nehemiah, Restoration Man. One of the issues that the people of God were initially committed to, but then got badly wrong, which led to all kinds of problems, was their giving. It was their handling of of, and sharing of money and resources. They had set out, and those of you who tracked that series with us will know this, they set out with good intentions, biblical intentions. They set out to be generous. What happened in the end? They became selfish. They started to cling on to their money. They stopped giving it away. They stopped sharing it. And that contributed to a rather bleak and sad end to their story as we discovered two weeks ago. And we don't want to make the same mistake. So the reason for this series flows out of what we discovered in Nehemiah. Third, final reason for this series is because of where we find ourselves as a church. We, we are in the midst of a move, God willing, to a new location, a new building. And, and the issue of money and the issue of giving is therefore highly relevant and topical. We can't avoid it. It has been and it will be referred to on a regular basis as we journey together and we keep everyone up to date as where we're at with regard to targets and appeals. We need money. We need people to give, but it's vital that this doesn't just become a number crunching exercise. That this doesn't just become about a building project. But this will be seen as an opportunity to enlarge vision, to deepen our discipleship, and ultimately to bring glory to God. It's got to be seen through that lens. And so as we begin this series of money talks, because that's effectively what they are, and because money does talk, I mean, money speaks volumes, doesn't it? Certainly, my attitude towards it and what I do with my money speaks volumes. And so I want to start this morning, and this morning is very much about just kind of setting the scene, but I want to start today not with money, and not even with ourselves, but where we should start, and that is with God. And I want to start by recognizing and and highlighting and emphasizing two critical things and facts and realities about God that if we can fully appreciate and fully get and accept, then we should have or it will have a significant effect on our view of money and what we do with it. And so the first truth that I want to affirm on this first morning of this series is this, the generosity of God. I want to begin with the generous heart of the Father. Because if we understand and celebrate that, then it will shape our hearts towards that way of life. And that will have an obvious effect, as I say, on how we relate to and how we use money. Right from Genesis 1, the love and the generosity of God, his big-heartedness, his open-handedness, is visibly expressed in creation, isn't it? Here we have a God who makes a world, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others. For the enjoyment of his creatures and the people who would inhabit his universe. Creation was, to quote one writer, creation was the impressive display of a supremely lavish and generous benefactor with a sensational imagination. God is so generous, right from the word go, right from the start as he created. We see a generous God. 
But humanity rebels. It challenges. We challenge God's authority. We challenge his generosity. And as a result of our rebellion, we create this rupture and this rift in relationship. But God doesn't turn his back on his creation. God doesn't turn his back on humanity. He had every right to. But the Old Testament kind of tells the tale of God's ongoing generosity towards his people. Even as they continued to reject his laws and lust after man-made idols and revel in their greed. But, But God never gave up on them. He watched over his people. He met their needs. At times, yes, God did come across as stern. I know that. I recognize that. I accept that. But the severity that God expressed was always geared towards his people's best interests and their welfare. a generous God. And as you come into the the New Testament, I know I'm fast forwarding a bit, but as you come into the New Testament, you kind of get to the culmination of his love, for it says, God so loved the world that he gave. God showed, God kind of proved his love by this incredible act and demonstration of generosity, the supreme gift of Jesus, a personal sacrifice, the ultimate offering. And as the apostle Paul, as his emotions are stirred by the generosity of God, as he reacts to it, he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God, you're so generous. And it's not that the humanity deserved, it's not that any of us deserved this. It's not that he gives to you and I, even though we don't deserve it. It's amazing grace. And tonight is is part of our Revealed series. We're going to look at that shocking incident in Luke chapter 7. Where Jesus is at the home of a wealthy Pharisee. And a local woman, probably a prostitute, we don't know that for sure. Most people think she was. But a prostitute, gate crashes the dinner party. And she approaches Jesus and she begins to pour perfume mingled with his tears or her tears on his feet. And the host is embarrassed. And nobody knows how to respond, but Jesus doesn't flinch. And in the silence of that moment, as this woman is wiping Jesus' feet and kissing Jesus' feet with her tears and with her perfume, and there's silence in the room, Jesus tells a story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, big question, which of them will love him more? And the answer's obvious, and the application to the bizarre behavior of the probable prostitute is just as clear. She had come from the gutter. But she had found acceptance at the feet of Jesus. You see, she had encountered God's extraordinary generosity and grace. And Christian history is a story of grace, the record of God's unending generosity and reaching down to rescue people and restore people like her and people like me, a sinner. God, you're so generous. And I don't deserve it. I can't earn your grace. But it's extraordinary, it's amazing, and it's extravagant. And so God's heart is bursting with generosity. 
And once we get that, and once we appreciate that, once we realize, yes, I have indeed been lifted out of the gutter, we will, as Paul said to the Christians in Corinth, we will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. We are rich people because of God's generosity. And if we really get that, we will be generous people. It flows. And so as we begin thinking about money and giving, we as the people of God have got to start by reaffirming and reminding ourselves of the heart of the Father. His open heart. His open hand. Because if we start there, then it will profoundly influence our attitude and our approach to this whole subject. Second thing I want to say, final thing I want to say by way of introduction, is that God is the owner of all things. We're simply stewards. And in terms of financial stewardship, this is a fundamental truth and essential starting point as well. If we think our money, any money that we have is ours, and it's ours alone to do with it as we please, then we'll never get a handle on this. We'll never get a handle on our finances, on our giving, on our generosity, on our sharing. From the beginning to the end of Scripture, it emphasizes God's ownership of everything. Let, let me just read you a few examples, just, just so we're clear on this. It's not me just saying this and anybody else. Saying, this is God's Word that says this. So Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and every single thing in it. Deuteronomy 10, 14, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest of heavens, the earth, and everything that's in it is yours, God. 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12, yours, Lord, is the greatness, it's the power, it's the glory, it's the majesty, it's the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You're exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. Job 41, 11, who has a claim against me that I must pay, says God to Job. Everything under heaven belongs to me. We know Psalm 50, this idea that every animal of the forest is God's and he owns the cattle in a thousand hills. It's all his. And Haggai 2, verse 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord God Almighty. And just in case we kind of think, well, okay, but we own ourselves, please remember what Paul wrote. Those of us who are Christians, please remember this. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Everything belongs to God, including us. We are his stewards. The money that I have in my pocket, the money that I have in my bank account, the money wherever you have it, wherever you invest it, is ultimately God's. It's been entrusted to, it hasn't been given to, it's been entrusted to us. And therefore, one of the greatest questions we need to constantly be asking is, God, what do you want me to do with your money? What do you want me to do with your possessions? A steward's primary goal, according to Scripture and according to the teaching of Jesus, a steward's primary goal is to be found faithful to his master. Faithful in how we have used the resources that have been entrusted to us, which includes time, 
It includes gifts, it includes opportunities, but it also includes our money and our possessions. So we're not owners. We are, if you like, as someone has said, we are God's money managers. And again, if we can grasp that perspective, then we will keep God, money, and ourselves in the right order. If we act like owners, I confess I do most of the time. When I act like an owner, I start to hoard. I start to keep. I start to accumulate. I start to store up treasure on earth. But even worse, I start to serve the wrong master. And so next week in part two, if anybody comes back, we'll explore the heart of the matter, which not surprisingly is the matter of the heart. Brilliant, love it. But having set the scene a little and explained why we're doing this, two fundamental starting points. God is generous and his generosity must shape our lives. God owns everything that money talks will be helpful and challenging. But you see this morning, if money is in danger of having a capital M in your life, please be so careful. Please, for God's sake and for your own, be so careful because you can't serve We're going to sing. According to the clock in that wall, it's chord to one. That was longer than I thought it was going to be. We're going to sing, I will worship. It's a song that says, you alone I will worship. It's a song that says, I will serve you. It's a song that says, I will give you everything. So it's a hard song to sing this. Glad I didn't choose it.